All right, well, now we're in our next lesson for uh, the Gospel of John, our So You May Believe series. We've gone through most of the book of John, and last week we discussed the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. So now we're narrowing in. We're going to talk about the last week that Jesus walked the earth before the crucifixion. So this is Passion Week or Holy Week. Now we've already narrowed in what he said about the Holy Spirit uh, midway through that week. And so now we're just going to talk about the steps leading up to the cross and some things that John will highlight that are important for us. So um, let's talk about his rejection, just kicking it off. Uh, so the Jews have been given every opportunity to believe in Jesus. Uh, but we find out from John that they're just really unwilling to accept it. Why is that? You think about all the things that we've learned so far uh, in our series. How can God come in the flesh for a Jew? That would have been a big thing. Uh, you're a blasphemer if you say these things. Yet on the other side, here's all these witnesses of works uh, that testify to him. But Israel ultimately expected their Messiah to deliver them from some political oppression. They thought the mission of the Messiah would be uh, tangible. It would be militaristic. And a lot of that will be true in his second coming. So they didn't understand his first coming through Scripture. But Jesus' mission is spiritual, and he's come first to liberate us from sin. And so, number one, most of the Jews would not still believe in Jesus, even though many signs were given. And number two, the Jewish leaders that believed were afraid to make a public confession. Look in John chapter 12, verse 43. And, and even moreover, many believers were afraid to admit it publicly. Uh, John says they were more interested even in humanity's approval than in God's. Now, isn't that true even today? How much we're interested in people's opinions of us, and that's why we go to church, and that's why we do the good things we do, but how much of our life is motivated by God's opinion. So in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, we see, hey, there's people could have made a confession of him, but they stayed silent. So think about that in contrast to the book of Acts, which we'll see people dying for their confession. All right. So the reason he's to this place is because people wouldn't confess publicly. And Jesus said this in, in Mark 8 and Luke 9. He said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So both Paul and John, uh, and later on, they're going to quote from Isaiah to show that his rejection has ultimately been prophesied. If you look in Isaiah chapter 53, what we just read in John chapter 12, uh, if you've read that this, this week in John chapter 12, verse 38, uh, even in Romans 10, 16, uh, this, this is all prophesied. John wants, and even the New Testament authors, want you to know that Jesus' rejection is all part of the story. So let's kind of get into that story a little bit. So as far as his rejection goes, there's a plot now in, in John chapter 11, verse 47, that because of Lazarus, uh, Jesus' greatest miracle, the chief priests uh, and the Pharisees, they convene this special council. They decide to arrest and kill Jesus. They fear their own loss of power over the loss of the of, over the masses. And that Rome, ultimately, they feared was going to come squash any rebellion. They were scared. Man, what if people think this guy is going to be our literal king? 
Rome's going to come in, many people are going to die. So they're thinking through the natural. Alright, so we've got that plot in place. About that same time, Mary comes in John 12, and she anoints Jesus. Uh, and we've seen this anointing happening uh, through Scripture as well. We're going to see different moments in Jesus' life. One at the, early on, where the uh, sinful woman uh, cries and weeps and anoints him. Uh, and now we're seeing this at the, at the very end of his life, that he's anointed and ultimately symbolically anointed for burial again. So um, <clears throat> Mary anoints him in John 12, and then in, we move into Palm Sunday, which would be the first day of the week. We, you know, Palm Sunday, Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. Uh, he cries over uh, the city, the Hosanna in the highest. He fulfills Zechariah 9:9 to that, uh, you know, hey, your King is come. He's a Prince of Peace coming in, and Jesus foretells his death in John chapter 12. This passage really begins to summarize Jesus, his evaluation of his rejection, of their belief and their unbelief. And look in John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50, if you have a Bible. Uh, number one, you're right there at the very beginning, you see there is this evaluation of belief. Jesus is the light of the world, and those who follow him will live in the light. And this journey is only possible uh, through belief in Jesus and that he's one with the Father. And then he goes on, and there's an evaluation of their unbelief that God's words have been rejected by the Jews and that judgment's going to take place at the last day, and it's going to be the last day of God's final judgment. And then there's an evaluation of his credentials that Jesus doesn't speak on his own, but he speaks of what the Father says. And so there's an evaluation of their belief, of their unbelief, and of his credentials. And so he's telling us, about his death, that he's going to die on the cross. He's been saying it over and over again to the his early followers, the disciples, and yet they still can't see. They still don't understand. And so as he's come into uh, Palm Sunday, and the people have cried Hosanna, and he knows they still don't understand, that there's still unbelief in their heart. Many are not going to confess him. He's come as the Prince of Peace, and now we're in that week. Okay, so just caught you up. It's kind of an interesting thing. He's been he's been rejected. He's been confirmed. But there's ultimately going to be a complete rejection that every single person, and that's, that's going to be on all of us, that we've all rejected him. Peter uh, is going to reject him. The only guy that's not going to reject him, as we've said before, uh, and to go with him to the very end is John. So how important it is for us to listen to John as an author, uh, as one who doesn't ultimately reject him. Who struggles with it, no doubt. John struggles with it. But how does he uh, process this moment? So, alright, so let's talk about that farewell discourse. Um, unique to John in this chat, these next few chapters is going to be in, in chapter 13, 14, and 17. Unique to John is that Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet uh, in chapter 13. In chapter 14, unique to John is that he's going to promise the Holy Spirit. Uh, and you're going to see some interesting topics that we've already talked about, about Jesus promising the Holy Spirit and what he teaches the disciples uh, about the Holy Spirit and the reason he's leaving. And then in John chapter 17, you're going to see that high priest prayer that's only recorded in John. And I encourage you to read that in John chapter 17. But not in John is that Jesus is going to give the disciples to prepare a Passover feast. And not in John 
is uh, when he explains the significance of the bread and the cup, and not in John, is uh, uh, addressing the dispute among the disciples over who's going to be the greatest. So think about that. Why would John not uh, incorporate all the instructions for the Passover? Why wouldn't he incorporate the significance of the bread and the cup? You think of all the people who'd be symbolic. It'd be John. And John doesn't talk about the dispute. Now, maybe he already knows that that is in the other authors, uh, that that's already happened in the other Gospels, uh, right? The people have already received uh, John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They know the, that story, and so he's done that. But also, John's got something he wants to tell you, and whether it be a, a lack of time or just doesn't fit the way he's narrating this last few moments, John is really going to narrow in on these last moments of Christ. So again, think about the very beginning of this story. The very beginning in John chapter 1, we have this Logos, this infinite cosmic God, and the beginning was God, and you know, there's light and darkness, and it didn't comprehend it, and the light was a life of men, and this really big uh, epic moment. And then we see him uh, go from public ministry in the early parts of John, then Jesus goes to uh, his private ministry, uh, with his disciples, and now you've definitely got this last few moments where it's just an even smaller. So it's kind of like John goes from big to narrow. And the, look in John chapter 13, it's the Last Supper. So the this period of conference begins with the Last Supper. John 13 records Jesus' private ministry with his disciples. They realize it's the time for his departure. Uh, it's arrived here in John chapter 13, verse 1. And Jesus' main purpose here is to strengthen their belief in him. Uh, and that's kind of that major motif during this final meal is this love moment. So John has always been about narrowing in on love. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, John chapter 3, we've already seen that at the very beginning. That God came because of love. And so this is even, uh, we're going to talk about that love uh, motif and, and theme here in a, uh, a couple of weeks. But this final meal's motivation is love. And so on Thursday evening, on Passover in a large room, the disciples and Jesus have eaten the Passover meal. And during the meal, uh, Jesus wrapped himself in a towel. He's washed the disciples' feet. So we're going to combine all the Gospels here for a second. And then Jesus taking the bread, um, which is symbolic of poverty. He takes the third cup, which we call the cup of redemption or blessing if you're a Jew. And he's explained that his blood and his body are a new covenant given for the forgiveness of sins. You can see in Matthew chapter 26. And uh, he's distributed the bread. He's broken it. He's blessed it. He says, I am this bread. And he says, eat of this. My body is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he gives them the next cup, the cup of complete redemption. And he says, uh, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he refuses to drink from the traditional fourth cup of Passover, which is called the cup of praise. Because uh, theologically, he's saying, we're going to hold this cup until we're all gathered again. Um, he's like, I'm not going to drink this next cup until we get to uh, heaven together. And so he says that final cup of praise will be at that final banquet meal. Uh, in heaven ultimately. So that's kind of interesting. It's kind of like an unfinished meal that happens with 
John and the disciples. And he does this moment out of love and out of communion. Hey, I want to be with you now, and uh, we're going to identify together in this. But at the same time, we're going to finish this meal later on. And so we haven't completed the ceremony yet. And so that's kind of an interesting thing just to add in there. He washes their feet. Um, and as he's gotten to their destination, you know, no servant uh, was available uh, to wash their feet, which was custom. So Jesus now interrupts the meal and gives this lesson. It's a lesson on servanthood, one that would impact John. And it's ultimately what he kept telling them. If you remember reading through John, where he actually says to John's uh, John and James's mom, who say, "Hey, can our son eat? You know, be with you and and rule and reign with you?" And he's like, "Well, they've got to drink of the cup of suffering." And um, servanthood. These guys are wanting to call down fire from heaven. Remember, John is son of Boanerges, son of thunder, with his brother James. And and look how John narrows in. He's like, I want you to understand something. Uh, in John chapter 13, about this washing of the feet, Jesus came as a servant. He came for love. He came as so. This is Logos, cosmic, powerful God who can walk on wind, uh, water, who calms the wind with his voice. Now he's saying, look, serve like me be like me and so Jesus begins to explain his role in washing their feet um, and this lesson would be lived out on the cross over the next few hours so he gives like an illustrated sermon it compares um, uh, for John it, it illustrates this incomparable love of Christ right and as their teacher and Lord uh, the servant doesn't rank above uh, his master look in verse 16 so he teaches them this important spiritual principle of selfless giving and humility. And he commands them there to practice this same type of love, serving one another, uh, because it would bring a spiritual blessing from him. And this external washing uh, is kind of this picture of cleansing from evil. And let me go even on to that, that in the tabernacle, or sorry, the temple and the tabernacle, when the priests basically would come in to do ministry, they would be baptized and, and they would cleanse and they'd have all the ceremonies and make sacrifices for themselves and all their sin. But one of the things they would do as they processed the sacrifice, before they would enter into the uh, holy place, they would come to the basin, which was this bronze basin. They'd wash their hands, they'd wash their feet. Now there's a moment here where Peter is going to say something. He's going to say, Jesus, you know, wash my whole body also. You know, don't just wash my hands and feet. And Jesus says, well, if you're already clean, you don't need to wash anything but, uh, you know, your feet here. Now, they could have washed their hands as a part of the ceremony of Passover as well. So let's just say this. It's as if Jesus is inaugurating a new priesthood with these followers. He's inaugurating and commissioning them in some sense that it's like he's about to perform the sacrifice and he gets after as he's doing this process the symbolism of this uh, high priesthood is initiated it's as if they're all they're all been baptized they've all been cleansed they've all followed Jesus they committed to follow him and now as a part of entering ministry you have to have your feet washed and he does that in kind of a this twofold thing so one it's a servanthood role but at the same time you can kind of see this moment with Peter and he says well you only have to have your feet washed I think that's a good allusion back to that priesthood where the priest would wash their feet uh, the thing about when that when a priest sacrifices an animal they're covered in blood hands their feet gets blood splashed on it and they got to go in the holy place 
cleansed. They're, they've had their sin atoned for. But there's also this symbolic washing of the Holy Spirit that the priests would do. They'd wash their hands, their feet, make sure uh, they were cleansed before they go into the holy place. That bronze uh, wash basin stood right in front of the entrance to the holy place. So after the sacrifice, you had a wash. So it's just interesting there. <clears throat> but this voluntary humiliation, it begins to rebuke more over the pride of the disciples. Jesus was too good, ultimately, to be washing their feet. And uh, it humbled them. So there's this tension that's in the room that John doesn't really communicate, but the other Gospels do, about how they really wanted to uh, be the best of the best and rule and reign and have power. And then here's Jesus come in and just knock that down. He, uh, Luke notes that when the disciples entered the room, in Luke 22 verse, uh, Luke chapter 22 verse 24, they were they were that was when they were arguing, and Jesus just does uh, with his keen understanding and and knowing who he was and where he'd come from and where he was going, look what he was willing to do. All right, so that changed the moment, and then now that brings out that look look what happens is that that moment of humility brings out the traitor all right in the spirit all right so while washing the disciples feet he makes this reference to a traitor in, in john chapter 13 verse 10 um you know and, and i'll just say this in john chapter 13 verse 2 it says the devil had already put it into judas iscariot the son of simon to whom uh, to who would betray him and jesus knew what was going on so he, he serves them in the middle of his betrayal. He washes his own betrayer's feet. Now think about that uh, to the level of oh, just the, the power in that moment right there. He washes Judas' feet. And Jesus refers to Psalms 41 verse 9 uh, where he knew he would be betrayed. All right, And the disciples didn't know this, that Judas already betrayed Jesus and had contact with the high priest. So... Um, if you compare uh, chapter 13, verse 22 with Mark chapter 14, uh, it shows this anxiety of the disciples when they learn that there's a traitor in their midst. And even John, John asks Jesus, Jesus, who is it? And it was probably, uh, you know, John is very close to Jesus. We would know that he was next to him uh, in that moment. Uh, we know he's the disciple who leaned on the breast of Jesus. So they're like laying down when you would eat in a first century you'd be reclined with your feet behind you propped up on your elbow so you kind of look back to talk to the person beside you so you're kind of at their chest so don't think anything weird about it um john leans over and asks who's is it and john's question uh jesus responds to in a hushed tone he says it's the one to i'm give this sop well the sop is this piece of bread this flat bread somewhat leather leathery probably in consistency and it was used to kind of scoop bits of meat taken from this common pot, which they were cooked. So kind of a chip and dip thing. Uh, and a host, uh, to do this, was to select that, that thing from the main dish. He'd get a scoop of the main dish, and he'd give it to a guest. Uh, and that's kind of a mark of courtesy or esteem, favor. And the disciples would just conclude that, hey, the Judas is, that Jesus is befriending Judas, right? But... We know that at verse 27 it says, When he took the morsel, which is the sop, Satan entered into Judas. And Judas enters into that point of no return. Uh, and he says, Go do what you, you know, you're supposed to do. So think about that. Jesus has washed Judas's feet. He's given him a gift of favor as if to say, I love you. You can repent. You can turn. You can turn. You can turn. 
And Jesus goes with him in utter care and love until the very moment that Judas enters that point of no return. And so uh, this is the only time that the name Satan is used in the Gospel of John. And uh, Judas is possessed, uh, moved by the devil uh, in that moment to carry out this act. And the disciples don't understand what's going on and they just think Judas leaves to go buy more food or give money to the poor. But now because Judas is left during the night, um, you can kind of see that spiritual darkness take over, right? Uh, the darkness that we had talked about from the beginning has now come back into, you know, into realization with John. Judas has abandoned the spiritual light of Jesus and went out into the darkness, okay? All right, so let's go into the verse, chapter 13, verses 31. Um, and Jesus, when he had gone out, said this, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Okay, now look at all the glories in that. So they want to be exalted, right? They want to be glorified and be at the highest position with Jesus and rule and reign with him. And so not only has he uh, highlighted their, the humble servant that he has to be, he's highlighted how he's lowered himself and who he is. He's befriended his traitor. He's washed their feet. And he says all these glories. But what he wants them to understand is that he must suffer in his role as the Son of Man, uh, fulfill God's plan, and then God will glorify him. And John's use of glorify is very unique. It's very peculiar. Uh, this word is only used five times. I'm sorry, this word occurs five times in those, those verses, 31 and 32. And it's kind of repeat, uh, a lot of repetition, right? Uh, it in the key of this word in the Greek it means exaltation but every time Jesus talks about it he's talking about his death so he's connecting that his death will accomplish the work of God and fulfill this great hour uh, that he's been destined to do and this cross is going to become the supreme glory of God because the Son's going to completely obey the Father, even to the death of Himself. So, the meaning of exalt or magnify, you know, can kind of fit here. That God will glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him at once. But this duality of glory, it also appears in John chapter 17. Uh, when Jesus says who He is. Uh, that He's going to glorify the Father by completing the task that's been assigned to Him. And he's asking the Father in John 17, Hey, restore that glory that I had before the world began. In John chapter 17, verse 5. So, glory. What is glory in your life? Uh, to glorify God. Is that the ultimate glory that you could see? Is it to, even to the death of self that you would glorify God? Because those who humble themselves in the Lord, He will lift them up in due time. That Jesus says that. That's like... Guys, if you want to be lifted up, you've got to follow me. You know, remember at the very beginning, you know, if you crucify your flesh, if you take up your cross and follow me, you know, you do the will of the Father, you die to self, you die to flesh, that God begins to lift you up. So the way upward is often downward. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. That you can never get upward with God through the acts of the flesh. The flesh can never please God. So the ultimate thing is to crucify the flesh, live to the Spirit in obedience to God's Word. And so that's the Christian way. John sees this huge theology 
there in the glorification of Christ, that it is to the death of the carnal flesh that we actually find our glory, that there's no way forward or up or better or to be best that you can do of works of your own self or following your own way. So he sees that. Now look in uh, chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one another. Now I said we're going to talk about the love theme a little bit later, but let's dig into this since it's that same night. The heart of that passage is there, of the whole chapter, is this new commandment, this new covenant, this new command. He says that love among Christians is in that uh, what we're all about. So again, if you've died to self, you'll love other people. So if we fail in this, the world's going to be given the right to say, hey, well, you're not disciples of Christ, that the new commandment is related to this new covenant where God's law is going to be written on your heart and it's going to be fulfilled by the blood of Jesus. That John now has made brotherly love the main theme uh, of what Jesus is saying, and it's going to become John's main theme in his epistles, First John uh, chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 20, that it's all about the love of the brethren. That's how you know who one is, loving God's people more than yourself. Uh, what a message that at the end of this gospel, and the ultimate thing we all should be focused on in this day and hour that we live, is have you died to the glory of God, and do you love other people more than you love yourself? Have you made a statement of, of sacrifice for them? And love's not this uh, emotional thing, which it is, but for Jesus, it's demonstrated in ultimate sacrifice for other people. So whether you have a goosebump feeling or not, it's no, whatever, whatever I feel doesn't matter. I choose to die to my flesh for the obedience of God, for God's glory, and I choose to sacrifice for the benefit of someone else. And that's ultimately the definition of love. It's the choice to die for the sake of someone else. So when we die in our marriages, we die in our, our parenting, the way we talk to our children and, and lead them, the way we lead our coworkers. Uh, it is not something that we have to feel goosebumps about. No doubt, when you die to self, you're not feeling very good. You're not going to feel good. Uh, you have to choose, say, you know what, I choose to glorify God. That's ultimately where John is leading us, that this God has come to choose to die. Does he want to die? No. Does he feel good about it? No. He chooses to die with shame and suffering and anguish, and yet it's because he wants to glorify the Father, obey his word, and he chooses love. And so uh, there's nothing good, uh, goosebumpy, emotionally sappy, uh, about death uh, in this way, self-sacrificial death. Uh, and I, I look at the world and sometimes think about how the world has portrayed love. It's just a romantic sexual love most of the time. And um, and look what Peter, I mean, it kind of goes right into the next part with Peter. Peter tells Jesus, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. But Jesus knows Peter better than Peter even knows himself. And so he says, hey, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. You're going to love yourself ultimately more than me. And how that speaks. Now, it's interesting John puts this in there. And, and you know, I don't think he was shaming Peter. But it's this contrast. Do you love God's word 
and obeying God's word? And do you love Jesus more than you love yourself? And we know Peter fails that test. And so he's going to encourage them because he knows they're going to fail. So if you look at the next couple of chapters, I'm just going to highlight a few things. Uh, and then we're going to wrap it up here. But in John chapter 14, we've already talked about all these things. But in John chapter 14 now, he wants to encourage them in these last few moments. So just bear with me and we'll apply this together to here at the end. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, he tells them he's going to leave them, but they can't follow. And that Peter's going to deny him. And when Thomas is now honest and frank about it, and he has some tangible evidence. He says, all right, Jesus, just tell me the way to the Father. And he's like, how do you not know what I'm talking about? I've been telling you guys this thing for how long? You know, come on, guys, get this. He says, I'm the way to the Father, and it's through me you can come to the Father. And that Jesus is truth. Uh, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And if I'm conveying you the total truth of God's revelation in my own person, and I am truth incarnate, and I am life incarnate, and if you make the life of, I'm the one that makes the life of God available to all humanity. And I encourage you to go back to our, our statements about Jesus a, a few weeks ago and listen in on what Jesus says about himself, his I am statements. And so then he goes on in John chapter 14, verse 7. Let's just look at that. John chapter 14, verse 7. He says, If you had known me, you'd know the Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And he, Philip's like, well, show us the Father. It'd be enough uh, for us. And he's like, well, how long have I had to been with you, Philip? And if you see me, you've seen the Father. Show us the Father. Uh, how do you say that? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me. Okay, that's key, because John chapter 15 is going to be that vine chapter about abiding, uh, which we said was one of the key words in our second lesson about John's uh, historical background and his literary context, why he uses specific words there. He uses that word abiding on purpose. So go back and listen to that lesson. Uh, believe in me that I am in the Father, the Father is also in me. Otherwise, believe because the works themselves. Um, he talks about this oneness with the Father, with Philip. Philip requests a visible manifestation of God, uh, which shows the disciples are really still confused about, man, who Jesus is and what Jesus has been saying to them. And Philip's this practical guy, right? And he's totally lost when Jesus says, hey, I'm talking about physical things, and then Jesus starts talking about spiritual things. And he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So what that means is that Jesus is more than just this um, manifestation. He is actual deity. And one author says that no New Testament passage gives more overwhelming evidence that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons working together in perfect union. Um, that Jesus and the Father... One is in heaven, one is on the earth, one is in the flesh, come in the flesh. They're both the same person, they're both God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was God, and He was with God. He is both together and separate. That's in, very, very important for Christianity to understand that. Uh, he is both God and both separate. He is God, He is one with God, He is God. There is only one God, but they are both two distinct um personality um, manifestations, two distinct personhoods of God. God is plural. God can do anything He wants to do. It's beyond our comprehension understanding. It's pointless to argue and debate about it and figure it, try to figure it out. But we see, just take Jesus at His own words. He was God. 
he was with God, that the Father and him are one, but there's two different manifestations there. There's two different personhoods that Jesus and the Father are two distinct revelations that we're to understand about the one true God. And so Jesus goes on to them. He says, okay, now I want you to understand this too. I want to be with one with you and you and me. And so, so I'm going to talk to you about something. John 15 and then John 17. So John 15 is that vine talk. We said, I am the vine. So again, one of those I am statements. And he says, uh, uh, his, his vine understanding, we said, was that the vine is the true Israel. And so I am the true vine, John 15, 1. This is the last of the major I am statements. And the key word there, again, is abide and remain. And he uses this union with the disciples through the vine and its branches, this picture. And Jesus is the true vine. The Father is the gardener and the disciples are the branches. The disciples are to remain in Jesus. That means they're to remain unbroken in this active connection. And if so, they're going to bear a lot of fruit. But so long as they only remain attached to him. He's the new Israel. He's the source. He's the connection to God. Don't go back to traditions. Don't go back to sacrifices. Don't go back to temple worship. Don't go back to thinking that Moses is greater than Jesus. Don't go back to anything like that. I am it. I am the one. Stay in me. Stay in me. I'm about to leave you. I want you to love each other. I want you to follow me. I'm telling you what to do. Die to yourself. Glorify God. Serve one another. Know that I'm the way, the truth, the life. Know that I'm one with the Father. Be a part of me. Stay in me. Remain in me. Have active connection with me. You're going to be pruned, he says, but you're going to bear much fruit. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. God's going to do some things in you. You're not going to like it. But we're going to learn from this that you're going to be strengthened by various trials and sufferings, but you're going to produce fruit so long as you remain in me. So think about all these things he's saying to them these last moments. Man, how nervous you'd be about all these things he's saying. And it's kind of a scary thing to enter this Christianity, by the way. And here's what Jesus does. I mean, it's a powerful thing, and we're going to close with this, is this high priestly prayer. So I want to end on the high priestly prayer, and then that'll get us into the actual passion narrative. All right, so this is the last week. It's the night he's about to be betrayed. Before he betrays, he prays for you and me. Do you know that you are in Scripture? You personally, wherever you are, whoever's listening to this, you are in Scripture. You're in Scripture. Jesus prays for you in Scripture. And, and, and I want you to read John chapter 17. And think about Jesus is praying for you. And he prays. He begins to tell his Father, The hours come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And we talked about what glorify means, exalting him through death. And um, he talks to them and he says, You know, God, I've glorified you on this earth, and I've done everything you want me to do. Now, Father, glorify me. And, and bring me basically back to the place where I was at the beginning. You know, I want to be back with you. That's God. Jesus' goal is to be back with God. You know, how, how awesome is that? He tells, he says, you know, God, I've manifested. Father, I've manifested your name to men. And I've kept your word. And, and they've kept your word. And they've stayed with me. Um, and, uh, you know, the only one I'm losing here is going to be this bad guy, uh, Judas. And um, he says, I'm asking on their behalf, you know, uh, keep them. They're mine. I've been glorified in them. And they're not in the world anymore. I've pulled them out of the world. And he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that that they may be one, even as we are. And he says, I've come to you. And he goes on, he says, the world's hated them, and, and I'm praying against the evil one for them, God, that you're going to sanctify them and, and keep them in truth. And he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also, for
for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. All right. Jesus prays for you in the future, every believer that he would ever have from the words of his disciples and from his own words. And he prays for you to be one with him and one with one another. Doesn't that just complete all this together? It pulls this whole last week together. That this prayer, um, it's different from this Gethsemane prayer we're going to look at here in a few little in a little bit. But it's these unique terms to John. He says glory, glorify, sent, believe. He talks about the world. He talks about love. And all these things that John has seen him do, he prays this one beautifully prayer. And then the first five verses, he says, you know, glorify your son. He's talking about his position. And glorify me. He talks about his person. And he's talking about how his glorification would accomplish, encompass his death, his resurrection power, his majestic ascension. He prays he returns to this incarnate unity with the Father. And in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And it's the largest part of his prayer is about his disciples. He was much more concerned about them than about himself. Isn't that something? He was so sure uh, that his suffering had to lead to the victory. And he knew that. And his disciples, however, man, they're not, they're, they're likely to fail. And so he says, hey, God, protect them from evil. Sanctify them. Protect them in holiness. And he makes this important distinction between the world and his followers. He sends his disciples into the world. Uh, and that Greek word there is uh, the same word we get the word apostle, sent one. He's sending them out as apostles. And uh, he's equipping them. He's praying for their equipping to do the task. And we'll know from the other Gospels, at Luke specifically, that he's going to say, wait till you receive power from on high after he breathes on them at the ascension. And then look in Doris 20 through 26. He prays for all of us on two petitions. Number one, unity for all believers for the sake of their witness because the world's a divided world. Now think about that. Just pause for a second. Think about how divided the world is today. How much more do we need to see unity in the body of Christ? And that's Christ's last will and testament. That's like when someone's on their deathbed dying and they're asking, hey, I pray that all my family just get along. How should we take that? Like, man, the world is divided. Jesus' followers are be to be cohesive, that the unity of the church has got to spring from this common life that's been imparted to all believers, that it's manifested in our common love for Jesus and for one another as we face this divided world. So unity for the sake of witness. And then he, secondly, he requests that all of his disciples might be with him in glory. It means that we've got to die to self to do the same things that Jesus called us to do. His, his call is for unity and for glory. So how do you apply that to your life? Jesus wants you to be united with Him, united with others, and He wants you to be glorified. So what's the definition of glory? Or He completely obeys the Word of God till death, and that it He completely uh, just fulfills the will of God in His life, even to the self-sacrifice, for the sake of loving God and loving others. And that's this last week. This last week of his life, the last things that someone would say, if you know you're about to die and you know you're about to leave this world, you know the most, this like things you want to tell your kids before they die, the things that you want to tell everyone before you die, how important these last few chapters of John really are for Jesus to communicate to you and to me, even today, because you are in John 17. 
So this last week, Passion Week, Holy Week, he prays, and it sums up everything he's done from his new commandment to what he tells Peter about how Peter's going to deny him to the glorification that he talks about. He's going to have to glorify God with death to a betrayal that he has. He knows it's coming, but yet he dips the sop in, yet he washes his feet to this moment where he prays over people as he's even we rewind all the way to Sunday. He prays over people. Had you not known that your redemption is here? And everyone's going to betray me. And some will not stand up for me. And so he's asking you, he's asking me, would you stand for me? Would you uh, declare me? How do you declare me? You glorify God by dying to yourself to obey the will of God. You love other people more than yourself. In a divided world, they're going to know you by my love. And that's the most important thing. We don't like to err on a lot of things. I want to talk to you about tongues. I want to talk to you about our doctrinal position on water baptism or one saved, always saved. I want to make sure these important things are told to you. But the most important thing that Jesus wanted you and me, which we probably err the least on because it's the hardest, it's not the most comfortable, and it's like it doesn't sound that Christian-y. What's so distinctive about love? That's it. Jesus wants you and I to focus in on loving people more, on loving God more, on obeying His Word. Not the emotional, romantic love, but a choice to die to self to obey the Word of God. And so Jesus wraps it up that no one is above serving. And if Jesus washes our feet, how much more should we wash one another's feet? What does that look like in the modern day for you? What does it look like to serve those that you lead? And how do you ensure that you keep the same attitude that Christ had. And Peter uh, even illustrates that no one is above failure. We're all going to fail and even reject Jesus. But how do we learn not to be so overconfident? What are some safeguards you can keep in your life and maybe your ministry to keep you healthy spiritually, to keep you dependent on Jesus? And what does his prayer for unity look like today for you and your church and your context and your family? What kind of love is binding you together? How are you overcoming grievances and demonstrating to the world that the people of God are, are unique, that we're unprecedented in our church fellowship? That because we draw, uh, are we drawing people together because they see that the love of God is manifested in our churches? How do you guard unity between you and God? How do you guard unity between you and others? And how is this real for you? We're about to get into some nitty-gritty stuff in the next couple of weeks, and it's going to be really good. I encourage you to listen into the next week's lesson on the passion narrative and just the raw love that Jesus had for you uh, as he walked those final steps to the cross. So I hope you'll listen in uh, again right here at SanctuaryFWC.com. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you want to learn more about us, visit our website or find us on Facebook. We're so glad you're listening in and staying on the journey with us in the Gospel of John so you may believe.